Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of assault, murder, and gore. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On March 6th, 1873, in the dead of night, 37-year-old Marin Hauntvet ran for her life. Behind her, on the shore of tiny Smutty Nose Island, loomed a dark cottage, her home. Inside, her family was being slaughtered. <laughs> Marin sprinted in just her nightdress, clutching an extra skirt around her shoulders. It was a poor shield from the cold ocean wind. Her bare feet flew over rocks and snow, cut up by the jagged shoreline. Running beside her was her little dog, Ringe. But they had nowhere to go. Wherever they went, Marin knew he would find her. She only had one option. Marin scanned the beach, hoping to find the killer's boat and row to the neighboring islands for help. But there was no boat. She was trapped. Welcome to Solved Murders, True Crime Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Wednesday, we step into the world of true crime's most fascinating murder cases and tell the tale of how real-life detectives closed the case. You can find episodes of Solved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free exclusively on Spotify. This is our first episode on the Smutty Nose Murders, a brutal double homicide that's haunted coastal New England since the 1800s. This week, we'll explore the initial investigation of the killings. We'll follow authorities as they examine the bloody crime scene, interview witnesses, and hunt down their suspect. Next week, we'll follow the prosecution as they build their case, tell the story of how our killer came to know his victims, and recount their tragic fate. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money. Up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., 
and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. Smutty Nose is a tiny, rocky island located just a few miles off the coast of New Hampshire. It's part of a small archipelago known as the Isle of Shoals. After visiting Smutty Nose, novelist Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote he'd never seen a more dismal place. In fact, the islands that make up the Isle of Shoals are often described in this way, desolate, mysterious, and unwelcoming. Life on the Isle was hard and lonely. But in the first chapters of America's history, it was home to generations of fishermen with a dark and rugged legacy. Their legends tell of pirates, buried treasure, and the ghosts of men drowned at sea. And in 1873, a new bloody tale would join their ranks. The morning of March 6th was clear of clouds. The first day with a hint of spring. Norwegian fisherman Jorgis Ingebretsen planned to spend it on his boat. Around 7 o'clock, his children ran into the house and told him there was a woman on the rocks across the water, shouting. Jorgis went to see for himself. Sure enough, on the next island, he saw the silhouette of a woman frantically waving her arms. A pit formed in the fisherman's stomach. Something was horribly wrong. As Jorgis rode closer to the island, he recognized her. It was Marin Hantvet. The Hantvets were his neighbors, another Norwegian fishing family like his. Marin lived on Smutty Nose with her husband John, his brother Matthew, and Marin's siblings, Karen, Yvonne, and Yvonne's young wife, Annette. But now, Marin was alone. She stood on the rocks like a phantom. Her long, dark hair, usually fastened into a tight bun, blew wildly in the wind. As Jorgis grew closer, he realized her dress was stained with blood. Marin! Marin, what happened? Are you hurt? Annette! I need Karen! I, I couldn't bring them! Where are they? Tell me and I can help. At the house, but... He killed them! Jorgis rode Marin back to his home and alerted the other islanders. Jorgis didn't know the whole story, but his message to the others was clear. There was a killer on the shoals. Soon, a boat of armed men arrived on Smutty Nose. They searched the island, but the murderer had fled. And worse, the rest of Marin's family had no idea what had happened. Marin's husband John had sailed to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, the previous day with his brother Matthew and Marin's younger brother, Yvonne. But that morning, as soon as John, Matthew, and Yvonne returned to Smutty Nose, they found Jorgis and the others standing silently in front of the cottage. Jorgis, what's going on? Where's Marin? And John, listen. Marin is safe, but Annette and Karen. Dear Lord. Is that blood? Annette? 
Annette, where's my wife? As soon as Matthew spotted the blood in the snow, Yvonne pushed past the three men into the cottage. John followed. Wait, please wait. As the two men rushed through the door, they were greeted with a gruesome sight. Inside, Annette lay on the floor, her body mangled and slick with blood. Yvonne was in shock as he stared down at his wife. A wail ripped from his throat. A second later, John's voice joined him in an anguished howl. Reeling at the sight, the men stumbled from the house and fell to the snow. John turned to Jorgis, eyes blazing. Who did this? What monster butchered my family? Marin will tell you. She saw everything. The Shoals men continued to search the cottage, where they soon discovered Karen's body on the other side of the house. Meanwhile, John immediately went to Jorgis's home. There, Marin was still recovering from her minor wounds and frostbite, but to John, all that mattered was that she was safe. Marin was still in shock from the traumatic night, but she told her husband as much as she could. It happened so quickly. We were sleeping. Everything was quiet. And then Karen started screaming. Good Lord. It was all so fast. I told him to run, John. I tried, but Annette couldn't move, and Karen, I couldn't save them. So I ran. I ran and ran. And then I hid behind a rock by the water until morning. I don't know why he didn't find me. Well, thank God he didn't. I'm just so sorry I wasn't there, that I couldn't help. But we will find the man who did this. I won't sleep until I can look that devil in the face. You don't understand, John. He wasn't a stranger. I know who he is. And you know him too. Lewis. After Marin fled that night, she was certain she knew the killer's identity. She believed he was a close family friend named Louis Wagner. In his book Mystery on the Isles of Shoals, historian J. Dennis Robinson explains that Lewis was another immigrant fisherman, a 28-year-old Prussian from what is now Germany. He was six feet tall with blonde hair. He'd come to America alone, hopping from ship to ship seeking work until he met the Hauntwitz. In 1872, a year before the murders, John and Marin took Lewis in. John not only offered Lewis a job on his ship, but a home. By the following year, Lewis was practically part of the family. After speaking with Marin, John continued to mull over the information he had just learned. He retraced his own memory of that terrible night to see if anything stuck out. And slowly, John began to remember. The day of the murders, John, Matthew, and Yvonne had traveled to Portsmouth for new bait. And there on the docks, they had run in to Louis Wagner. Louis had chatted with the three men for a while. That itself wasn't suspicious. 
but at some point the conversation was interrupted by frustrating news. Their bait shipment wouldn't be coming in until late that night. The delay meant they'd be stuck on the mainland, baiting hooks until morning. With a rush of terror, John remembered Lewis was there for the entire conversation. He'd even asked them if they'd be returning to Smutty Nose that night, which meant that Lewis knew the women would be alone. Armed with this new discovery, John headed back to the mainland, where he reported the murders to Portsmouth police. Soon, police marshal Frank Johnson got to work. Johnson sent his officers looking for Louis Wagner throughout Portsmouth and nearby Boston. But while police embarked on a manhunt, an investigative team made their way to the crime scene. Around 8 p.m., just hours after the killings, a team of coroners, doctors, reporters, and police arrived on Smutty Nose. They had to navigate the island by lamplight. But even in the darkness, the glow of their lanterns showed the evidence of the carnage. In front of the house, laid a broken axe coated in blood and ice. As the men approached, they discovered exactly where the blood had come from. Not far from the axe, a pool of scarlet stained the snow and stretched into a long, dark smear. It traced a path around the house and to the entrance, and there, on the cottage door, was a bloody handprint. The men stepped inside. There was no sign of forced entry, and soon they realized why. The lock on the front door was already broken. Inside, the house was cold, dark, and deadly silent. As the detectives continued through the house, they discovered that the place had been ransacked. Furniture was toppled over, drawers and trunks emptied, their contents strewn across the floors. The men stepped around stray clothes and broken glass, making their way further into the house. But then, the coroner spotted a strange shape on the kitchen floor. As one of the coroners approached the form, he realized exactly what it was. The dead, mangled body of Annette Christensen. Annette's skull was cracked open, the obvious cause of her death. A piece of cloth had also been wrapped tightly around her neck. The coroner knelt down to examine it when something glinted from the floor. It was a broken clock. Through the splintered glass, he could see it must have stopped the moment it shattered to the ground at 1.07 a.m. Now the investigators had an approximate time of the murders. And as the men walked through the house, they saw further signs of the killer's actions over the course of the night. At the kitchen table, the men found dishes marked with bloody fingerprints. Even the handle of the kettle was smeared red. To the detectives, this suggested that the killer took his time before leaving the crime scene. At some point after the murders, he had made himself tea and sat down to a meal, just feet from Annette's body. On the far end of the house, they found the body of Marin's sister, 39-year-old Karen Christensen. Her corpse had been pushed underneath a bed, as if in a half-hearted attempt to keep it hidden. Her head was cut and bruised, and her eyes were still wide in terror. Karen's injuries paled in comparison to Annette's. 
but like her sister-in-law, she appeared to have been strangled. Investigators found a scarf wrapped around her throat as well. As the team searched other rooms, they discovered more trunks that had been opened and searched. It was clear the killer was looking for something, maybe money, more valuables. But from what the officers could tell, he only managed to steal around $16. In fact, he'd missed a stash of John's savings hidden in the bottom of one of the chests. Outside, the investigators found even more clues. By a small well behind the house, the men discovered a basin full of blood-stained cloth. It seemed that after committing the murders and eating a meal in the house, the murderer had come to the well to wash himself clean. This was a significant find. The well was discreet, just a ring of stones built low to the ground. It would have been difficult to find in the dark, unless the killer knew where to look. All of this pointed to Louis Wagner as the prime suspect. He knew this house as if it was his own and would have had no trouble navigating through the grounds in the dark of night. Detectives saw more evidence of this as they retraced the killer's path across the island as he hunted for Marin. Footprints in the snow led to any structure where she could have hidden. The chicken coop, the shed. This must have taken him a long time, maybe even hours. But he never found her. Marin had escaped. And her survival would be his downfall. Coming up, the police apprehend the potential killer. In a world of deep fake technology, fake news, and revisionist history, how do we know the difference between what's official and what's just fishy? That's where we come in. Hi, it's Molly and Carter from the Spotify original from Parcast, Conspiracy Theories. Every Monday and Wednesday, we examine the most controversial events in history because maybe there's so much more to the truth than we've been led to believe. From the mysteries of outer space to the secrets, lies, and possible cover-ups occurring right under our noses, we explore every angle in search of the actual truth. We're not skeptics or theorists. We're curious, rigorous, and in the end, we let you decide. Catch new episodes of Conspiracy Theories each week. Follow and listen for free, only on Spotify. And now, back to our story. Just hours after her sisters were brutally murdered, Maren Hauntvet was already helping police find their killer. She was certain the suspect was a close friend of her family, 28-year-old Louis Wagner, and on the night of March 6, 1873, the same day as the crime, police tracked him down. Lewis was apprehended around 8 p.m. at a boarding house in Boston. They recognized him by his large stature, distinctive blue eyes, and blonde hair. But the once bearded fisherman was now clean-shaven and wearing brand new clothes. The police searched Lewis, and in his pockets they found a silver half-dollar, some copper coins, and a small white button. Through all of this, Lewis was fairly cooperative. In fact, he never asked why he was being arrested in the first place. Portsmouth Police Marshal Frank Johnson found that especially strange. 
And once Lewis arrived at the Boston police station, Johnson was determined to get to the bottom of things. I noticed you have quite a few scars and blisters on your hands, Lewis. Did you do a fair bit of rowing last night? No, I was baiting trawls on the docks. I see. For whose ship? It wasn't John Honfitz, was it? No, but I did see John. Spoke to him when he and his brothers moored that afternoon. Uh, but I was working with some other captain. I didn't catch his name, but he sure paid well. A uh, dollar's a dollar, right? <laughs> uh, pay for this coat. Look, Lewis. My officers tell me you haven't once asked why we brought you in. I think that'd be your first question, but instead, you're here talking to me about new coats. Because like I said, I've done nothing. I suppose that could be true. Or is it because you already know why you were arrested? <sighs> All I know is that you have the wrong man. You rode over to the Shoals last night, Lewis, and once there you killed two women. Two women you knew. Karen and Annette Christensen. Good lord. That's impossible. I, I had nothing to do with that. Marin Hauntvet says it was you. She's an eyewitness. Marin may think she saw me, but I was on the mainland the whole night. I swear it. Lewis proceeded to give Marshall Johnson a detailed alibi. As he said, he'd met John Hauntvet and his brothers at the docks and then did some short-term work for some unnamed captain. After that, Lewis claimed he visited two different pubs and drank himself sick. Lewis explained that he had passed out somewhere on the street and slept there until the early morning. When he finally woke up, he made his way back to the boarding house where he'd been staying and fell asleep on a sofa downstairs. Marshall Johnson knew the only way to know for sure if Lewis was telling the truth was to find out for himself. So the officer and his team got to work. They scoured both Portsmouth and Boston to see if they could track down witnesses to either confirm or deny Lewis's alibi. But as they did, news of the bloody massacre on the Shoals spread. Earlier that evening, not even 24 hours after the murders had occurred, it had already made headlines. Lewis Wagner's name was all over these papers. Technically, he was still just a suspect, but in the court of public opinion, he was guilty as sin. The next morning, March 7th, the police attempted to transfer Lewis from Boston back to Portsmouth and were met by a raging mob. As officers escorted Lewis through the streets, jeering crowds followed them all the way to the train station. Despite the throng of angry people, the small team was able to board their train and they arrived in Portsmouth unscathed. But this was only the beginning. Another massive group of angry townspeople met them on the Portsmouth platform. I, I can't go out there. Please don't take me out there. I'm afraid we don't have a choice, Lewis. Stay behind me. Lynch the wretch! Snap his neck! Keep back! Murderer! Send him straight to hell! The crowds had brought a whole assortment of things to throw at Lewis Wagner, including snowballs, rope, and even bricks. The mob seemed hell-bent on making Lewis pay for the murders. Once again, a team of officers surrounded Lewis, shielding him from the lunging crowd. 
He trembled as he slowly made his way through. Through his shield of policemen, Lewis recognized the mob's faces, his fellow sailors and fishermen. He caught the eye of people he'd worked with, drank with, people who he thought were his friends. But to the people in the crowd, Lewis had broken an unspoken bond. In this close community of fishermen, loyalty and support meant everything. If Lewis had actually committed these horrific crimes, he had shattered that trust. And for that, Lewis Wagner had to be punished. Despite the crowd's jeering, Lewis made it to the Portsmouth jail in one piece. But that didn't mean he was safe from the ire of the townspeople. That afternoon, John Hauntvet, his brother Matthew, and brother-in-law Yvonne arrived to confront their family's alleged killer. Lewis! John! John, I'm glad you're here. We had to see for ourselves that you're behind bars. But you deserve far worse for what you've done. You're wrong, Matthew. I haven't done this. I swear to God I haven't. Your word means nothing, Lewis. Especially not against Morin's. Morin couldn't have seen me. Perhaps someone liked me, yes, but it was night. She must have been exhausted. Just roused from sleep. I'm telling you, she is mistaken. Liar! You are a liar, Louis Wagner. That I have always suspected. But if I had known you were a murderer too, I would have gutted you like a fish. Brother, take a step back. John... Please believe me. Am I not your friend? Maybe once, but now you're nothing more than a rat, a parasite. For God's sake, we fed you, we gave you work, and this is how you repay us. Was it money? Was that what you wanted? Yvonne, I didn't steal anything. But I know every trunk in the house. You know I do. Why would I kill anyone if I could easily just take the money and leave? John, Matthew, and Yvonne had arrived at the jail expecting Lewis to confess. They may have even hoped that he'd explain why he'd done something so unspeakable. But when Lewis denied everything, the men were left furious and unsatisfied. The hunt vets were certain Lewis was the killer. But even so, they knew he had a point. Lewis easily could have stolen from them without incident. So despite the haunt vet's certainty, one question plagued them. Why would Lewis murder Karen and Annette? Meanwhile, Marshall Johnson's team was hard at work interviewing citizens in both Portsmouth and Boston, desperate to confirm Lewis's whereabouts on that fateful night. And slowly... They were able to retrace his steps. One of the last people to see Lewis before the crime was his landlady, Ann Johnson. Lewis had been staying at her boarding house in Portsmouth, but the night of March 5th, he disappeared. It didn't seem strange at the time. He ate his supper, then left. I didn't see him again until the next morning, around 7.30, But when he came back, God, he looked like death. It was like his appetite was gone. He wouldn't touch a scrap of food, and his clothes were covered in fish blood. That isn't exactly unusual around these parts. We get a lot of fishermen, but now thinking about it? I don't know. Makes you think. 
Detectives then spoke to Anne's daughter, Mary, who did the laundry at the boarding house. Perhaps they were hoping that this young woman could help confirm that the stains on Lewis's clothes were, in fact, fish blood. But what she told them was far stranger. Lewis usually brings me his clothes to wash, but that day he didn't. And that wasn't even the most memorable thing. He was acting odd all morning, like he was scared. He told me he got himself into trouble and he was sobbing. I didn't know what to think. Later, when he went out to the privy, I noticed he was carrying something with him, a bundle of some sort, but I couldn't tell what it was. All of this seemed highly suspicious. Lewis left the boarding house at 6.30 p.m. and wasn't seen back again until 11 hours later. That would have given him plenty of time to row to the island, commit the crimes, and escape. Detectives knew that that morning after leaving the Johnson's boarding house, Lewis caught a train to Boston. So, they continued their search for answers there. Detectives found the barber who'd given Lewis a shave and a trim, and a cobbler who'd sold him a new pair of shoes. At the cobbler's, they also found some of Lewis's clothes he'd left behind, a pair of bloodied overalls and a white hat. Everything but his shirt Police put it all aside as evidence. They also spoke to the owners of a different boarding house where Lewis was known to stay in Boston. There, witnesses also noted his strange behavior. In Boston, it was clear that Lewis suddenly had money to spend, but not enough to last. At the boarding house, police learned that Lewis had begged the landlady to let him stay on credit until he found work and could pay her back. Adding up Lewis's expenses in Boston, the detectives determined that it totaled around $16, the same amount of cash stolen from Smutty Nose. This only furthered the suspicion that Lewis was guilty. But if that was true, investigators couldn't understand why Lewis didn't run. He could have easily fled coastal New England entirely. Instead, he'd stuck around. The police mused on this, wondering if it actually supported his innocence, or maybe he was hoping to be caught. Suspicious behavior was one thing, but what the police really needed was someone who could shed light on Lewis's actions over the course of those 11 hours when the murders were committed. Luckily, there was one person who had a first-hand account of that terrible night, Marin Hontvet was finally ready to talk. Coming up, the investigation closes in on Louis Wagner. Now, back to the story. By March 8, 1873, it had barely been three days since the murders on Smutty Nose Island. But Marshal Frank Johnson and the Portsmouth, New Hampshire police were already hitting a wall. Their main suspect, Louis Wagner, had a dodgy alibi, and yet he had no motive. And then the investigators were hit with a surprise. They learned the case wasn't actually in their jurisdiction. It was the state of Maine's. Though most assume Smutty Nose, like other islands of the Shoals, was considered part of New Hampshire, its location was technically in Maine's boundary waters. This complicated matters, but it also opened up the door to new resources. Specifically, prosecuting attorney 
George Yeaton. George Campbell Yeaton was a county lawyer from Maine. He was a polished man with a sharp mind and unwavering composure, a far cry from the rugged, foul-mouthed fishermen of Portsmouth. But for the Portsmouth police, he was exactly what the case needed. George quickly caught himself up on the investigation. Almost immediately after taking the case, he visited Smutty Nose to see the scene of the crime for himself. But to truly understand the nature of the massacre, he had to speak to the woman who survived it. After she'd been found frostbitten and in shock, Marin Hontvet spent the first day and a half of the investigation recovering. But now she was ready to tell George Eaton about that harrowing night. All right, Marin. Walk me through it, but take as much time as you need. It was in the middle of the night. Annette was sleeping in my room while the men were away. It was just us and Ringa, my little dog. Our bedroom is downstairs next to the kitchen. That's where Karen was sleeping. I woke up because Ringa did. He heard something. I I didn't know what had disturbed him until I heard Karen calling John's name. She was surprised he'd come home. But it wasn't John. When did you realize this? I'd called out to her, asking her what was the matter. She said that John had scared her. And then I heard her scream. That's when I knew. She started wailing. John kills me. John kills me. I tried to go to her, but the door wouldn't open. I pounded on it and I screamed, but I, I couldn't get to her. It's all right, Marin. Take a moment, then tell me what happened next. Somehow the door budged. I grabbed Karen and pulled her into the room, and that's when I saw him. Can you describe what you saw? It was dark, but in the moonlight I could see he was a large man. Tall, strong. I could tell he was young. He was like a phantom. He never even made a sound. Even when he was killing them. If you didn't hear him speak, what made you certain the man was Wagner? Especially if you didn't clearly see him. Because Annette did. She called out his name again and again, right before he cut her down. Her last words were Louis. Marin's account would be invaluable in court, but there was a problem. She wasn't the person who saw Lewis firsthand. That meant that her testimony could be considered hearsay. George Eaton knew this would make things difficult for the prosecution's case. After all, he had the burden of proof. He had to provide some evidence that Lewis had been the killer, and not just somebody who looked like him. But when reviewing the case materials, something stood out to George. He paused over the list of items taken from Lewis's pockets, some coins and a white button. And then suddenly he thought of an idea. He rushed out of the room to grab the evidence. When he returned, he set the items on the table in front of Marin. Do you recognize any of these coins? This button? Uh, Yes. Yes, I think so. 
These are Karen's. How do you know? The day it happened, Karen was supposed to go to the mainland to do some shopping, but the men never returned to take her. Annette and I had given her money in exactly this amount. Are you certain? Yes, she had put them all in her purse. But this is how I'm certain. This little white button is from my sewing basket. It's made of agate. Annette loved it and gave it to Karen, hoping she could find more like it in town. Perfect. Just like that, George had tangible evidence that connected Lewis to the killings. If he wasn't certain of Lewis's guilt before, he certainly believed it now. George made arrangements to have Lewis transferred to Maine the very next day. But as word got out, the people of Portsmouth organized another mob. And this time, they were determined to have his head. On March 8th, Lewis was again surrounded by an entourage of officers, including Marshal Frank Johnson, and was led down the streets of Portsmouth. They had Lewis wear a police cap, a feeble attempt at camouflage, but his tall, blonde frame stuck out like a beacon. The crowds surged forward, desperate to get to Lewis. This time, they were more aggressive than the last. They didn't just have snowballs and bricks. They had bats and guns. Kill the Prussian devil! The police aimed their own pistols at the mob, ready for anyone who dared come closer. And though the crowd heeded their warning, that didn't stop them from throwing what they could. People hurled rocks and bricks at the entourage. Several officers were hit but had no choice but to march their prisoner forward to the train station. At some point, Lewis was hit in the head by a projectile and began to bleed profusely. As the crowd roiled around them, the entourage hurried faster to the depot until finally they boarded safely. But before the train pulled away, something smashed through the cabin window and landed with a thud at the officer's feet. It was a brick. Lewis looked at Marshal Johnson, eyes wide in fear. A terrifying realization swept through him. No matter where he went, he'd never be safe. As Lewis's train crossed the border into Maine, Attorney George Yeaton was reviewing all he'd learned. Hardly any time had passed since he'd taken on the smutty-nosed murders, and already he was well on his way to building a strong case against Lewis. But there were still a lot of questions that remained unanswered, and since Lewis refused to confess, George decided to take another route. If Lewis wouldn't shed light on his motive, George wondered if John Honfit could help him come to a conclusion. I want to know more about Louis Wagner. And it seems to me that no one knows him as well as you do, John. He worked with you, lived with you. As far as I can tell, your family were perhaps the closest friends he had. I realized if anyone knows why Louis did what he did, you would. I can't begin to know how that wretch thinks. Nor do I want to. Do you kill your friends? Ambush them in the night and hack them to pieces? That's precisely what I mean. Why would Lewis have killed Karen and Annette 
especially if he had the chance to take the money and get out, without hurting anyone. What are you getting at? I have no doubts that Lewis killed Karen and Annette that night, but I have a feeling he never planned to. Thanks again for tuning in to Solved Murders. We'll be back next Wednesday with part two of the Smutty Nose Murders. We'll take a closer look at the alleged killer and recount the harrowing events that transpired that fateful night in 1873. For more information on this case, amongst the many sources we used, we found Mystery on the Isles of Shoals, Closing the Case on the Smutty Nose Axe Murders of 1873 by J. Dennis Robinson, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Solved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Solve Murders True Crime Mysteries is a Spotify original from ParCast, executive produced by Max Cutler. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and quality control by Lisa Marie Gallegos. Stacey Nemec is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Solve Murders was written by Alex Garland, edited by Georgia Hampton and Maggie Admire, fact-checked by Claire Cronin, researched by Mickey Taylor, produced by Joshua Kern, and sound designed by Michael Langsner. It stars Melissa Medina, Cameron Nicod, Julian Smith, Brian Green, Nazee Tarsha, Sammy Amounts, and Rebecca Thomas. Our hosts are Wendy McKenzie and me, Carter Roy. Hi, it's Carter and Molly from Conspiracy Theories. This February, join us for two standout specials. First, celebrate Super Bowl Sunday with a two-parter on one of the most dominant and dubious teams in history, the New England Patriots. Then, a two-part Valentine's special on the mysterious murder of Charles Walton. Journey back with us nearly 80 years as we comb through the details and rumors surrounding his death, pitchfork, witchcraft, and all. Catch new episodes of Conspiracy Theories every Monday and Wednesday. Follow and listen for free only on Spotify.